0: Acts chapter nineteen. This is probably one of the most interesting chapters in all the Book of Acts. Um, partly because it's it's uh, there's a, a great there's a lot of debate around this. There's a lot of um, different opinions about how do you interpret what's going on here uh, in, in Acts nineteen. Partly because some of the things that have been imitated from this chapter have got into some really weird things that. Uh, we wouldn't em- embrace, but it's interesting that they're, they're in here. But what we hopefully are going to see tonight is really just the kinds of things that, that we can glean from what Paul was doing when he was in Ephesus, because this is where he is. Paul's moving into Ephesus, uh, he's doing ministry here, and as we're going to see a lot of amazing stuff happened during his time to do ministry. This is probably his second time in Ephesus, this would be his second missionary journey. Uh, there and um, so we're going to pick it up in verse one of chapter 19 and uh, yeah, see what see what God has to say to us, okay? And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus and finding some disciples, he said to them, "Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, "We have not so much as heard whether there is. A holy spirit now <clears throat> paul when he's in corinth he sees these disciples and we're going to see in a minute what that means this is what the first controversy in the first verse is what does he mean by disciples here who what who are the disciples of what does that mean he sees that they're disciples uh, somehow he identifies them as he assumes they're believers and he, but he also feels compelled to ask the question did you receive the spirit when you believed now it's that question that has caused a lot of controversy, because some people say, okay, is it possible to not receive the Spirit when you first believe? You know, is that even possible? How does that happen? Uh, is this talking about something else besides what happens uh, by the work of the Spirit when we believe? What's this, uh, what's this referring to? And, and how you would answer that question would really affect how you would interpret what's happening here, and therefore how you would apply it to our lives, Okay. So, hopefully, as we look at the context, we're going to see what's going on here. But suffice it to say, Paul sensed that something was lacking in these disciples. These people who who identify themselves as learners, as disciples, uh, as as those that at least profess some sort of faith in the Messiah. um, He sensed there was something lacking in them. Like, Like, did they really receive the Spirit of God? Now, I think it's important for us to Uh, To be sober about this kind of thing. It's important for us to kind of ask this question. You know, do I really believe, you know? Do I I see evidence of God's Spirit in my life? Did I receive the Holy Spirit? And I I don't say that to to bring condemnation to anybody. Just the opposite, to say, okay, what is it? Where am I at with God? Do, Do I see God working in my life? It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. It's, it's, it's amazing too to me that we, we don't think this or we don't verbalize this maybe as, as quickly as Paul would. I know I've had the experience where I've met someone who says they're a Christian and I'm thinking, I don't know if that person is born again. I mean, they profess faith in Jesus, but there just seems to be like a lack of life. And I'm not talking about expressiveness, I'm not talking about uh, manifestations of the Holy Spirit that like we're going to see later on in the chapter. I'm just talking about there just seems to be no life there. It just seems to be maybe an intellectual ascent, but not a there's not something more to it. And, and I think th- there's a reality that we need to make sure that that our understanding of what God does when he saves us, is a pretty radical thing. Paul describes it as being pulled from the kingdom of darkness, being brought into the kingdom of light. There's this transference of kingdoms. There's this huge darkness to light transfer that happens, this massive switch. There's another analogy Paul uses is that you were dead and now you've been made alive. These are pretty drastic things, aren't they? And so when Paul sees these learners, he thinks there's something lacking there. And so when he asks them, did you, did you receive the Holy Spirit? they're like, Who's the Holy Spirit? <laughs> we have no clue what you're talking about, Paul. Now, so what happens is Paul asks them, verse three, he said, Into what then were you baptized? Okay, if if you don't even know who the Holy Spirit was, what were you baptized? Because Paul would probably assume that they were baptized in Christ, in obedience to what Jesus said, they would have been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, correct? Okay, So they say, into John's baptism. So then Paul said, John indeed uh, baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is, on Christ Jesus. So now this kind of gives us some insight to who these guys are. These are, what I would believe, are not disciples of Jesus yet, but disciples of John. Now remember, when John was on the scene... John, uh, he, he preached that, that, that God's people should uh, make their hearts, uh, prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. They should turn from sin, turn back to God because God's King was coming. They should kind of make the way of the Lord straight, as Isaiah said. It's the idea of move, remove any obstacles between you and God so that you are ready for when the Messiah comes. Now, John also said... In John chapter uh, 3, verse 30 and 31, John also said, He must, speaking of Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. Talking about Jesus. And so John in his ministry definitely pointed the Messiah's coming. There was a time when he would say, He's it. This is Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But because John's influence was so huge, these disciples may not have been those who actually heard john teach but as we see in the gospels there were those who were john's disciples who didn't immediately follow jesus remember when john's in prison he sent some of his disciples to talk to jesus disciples and say and ask the question for john are you the coming one or do we wait for somebody else And so these guys were guys who believed that God was going to send his Messiah, believed they needed to turn from their sin and and be ready to receive the Messiah when he comes, but didn't yet recognize Jesus as that Messiah. Are you following me? And so when, when John, or I'm sorry, when Paul senses this, he basically says, okay, good. It's good that you've repented. It's good that you've received that baptism of repentance. But what you really need to know is that John pointed to Jesus, and it's this Jesus that you need to put your faith in. Now, because I see this, my conviction about this text is that these men were not regenerated. They were not born again of the Holy Spirit. So these were what you might call God-fearers, kind of like maybe in the same place that maybe Cornelius was in, but then, but except for Jewish. They were in a place where they were uh, people who whom God was obviously working in because they knew they needed to repent, whom uh, God was obviously drawing because he made sure there was someone here to share the gospel with them, but hadn't yet been born again. Now this is important too because... I don't know if you if you guys ever think about this, but I'm pretty sure that in our church, in Servants Church today, however many people were there, there is a portion of people who have been going to church for a long time who know stuff about Jesus, but don't yet know Jesus. They haven't yet been born again. And I don't say that critically. I don't say that to be judgmental or harsh. I don't say that because I want that to be the case. But you have conversations with people, and you think, they seem to get, they, they, they understand what we're proclaiming. They don't seem to yet know him. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, what happens next is, it says when they heard this, verse 5, they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they actually received baptism. This is significant as well because, remember a similar thing we saw last week with Apollos. Where Apollos, what he knew, he knew, he knew well. But but um, Ananias and Sapphira, um, is that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah what? Priscilla and Aquila. I was thinking that's isn't right. Priscilla and Aquila. Yeah, that's right. Sorry, Priscilla and Aquila. Ananias and Sapphira died in back in chapter five. Different people. <laughs> While well, I'm rewriting the scripture as we as we go. Okay. So they, they, Priscilla and Aquila, had explained to Apollos the way of truth more accurately, but we don't have any record of Apollos being rebaptized, do we? And the early apostles, the most commentators believe that the twelve that Jesus picked would have also been baptized by John the baptizer, but they weren't rebaptized. So it's significant that these guys were rebaptized in the name of Christ. Okay. So these guys, they get baptized in the name of Christ out of obedience. So they believe in Jesus. They are baptized in Jesus. And what happens in verse 6? And when Paul laid his hands on them, what happened? The Holy Spirit came upon them. And they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men uh, who were, uh, were about 12 in all. Now we've talked about the work of the Spirit before as we've been going through the book of Acts. But it's good for a really quick review. The, what we believe here in Servants Church, is our, our conviction is is that nobody can come to God unless the Holy Spirit draws them, unless the Father uh, draw them to Jesus. No one's going to come to Jesus unless the Holy Spirit uh, draws them. That's what Jesus said in John chapter 6. So we believe anybody who comes to faith isn't just kind of intellectually searching things out and figuring things out. God's doing, a, you might say, a preemptive work. God is drawing them to come to know Jesus. As the Holy Spirit draws them to know Jesus, He's convicting them that they need a Savior, and He's convicting them that Jesus is that Savior. That's the work of the Spirit before conversion. Then as people come to that conviction, and they cry out to God and say, God, I need Jesus to save me, at that moment they cry out to God, they're regenerated or born again by the Spirit. And when they're born again by the Spirit, the Spirit comes and dwells in them forever. Jesus talked about the Spirit abiding in us forever. This is one of the reasons we believe that once a person's been born again, that's it. They're sealed by the Holy Spirit. They're forever belonging to God. They can't become unborn again. That's our conviction. okay? But we also believe in this experience that's being described again here, the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. You might call it the overflow of the Holy Spirit, where the Spirit who dwells inside a born-again believer overflows that Spirit and manifest himself in these kind of different ministries. So these guys are experiencing that. We would believe they're experiencing the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Okay? Now... The reason I'm bringing this up is because we want to kind of learn from Paul's experiences. We want to learn from his, the lessons we can get from his experiences in Ephesus. And and this is the first of three lessons I think we can learn. And that is this, that God's son must be the object of our faith. Jesus, God's son, must be the object of our faith. These guys had a faith that obviously, and, and God was obviously doing something in their heart. God was doing something in their heart. And they did have a, a faith that, okay, God sent John the Baptist to give us a message to prepare us for the Messiah. Was that true? Absolutely. Absolutely true. They had a faith. They needed to be learners and followers of this, the Messiah when he came. Is that true? Absolutely true. And so there was they had this faith. But the object of their faith was the teachings of John the Baptizer. And they had to grow into a place, they had to be brought to a place where the object of their faith was Jesus Christ and Him crucified, Jesus Christ Himself. Now, this is also important because listen, there's, there's, there's a reality here that as we focus, as Jesus remains the object of our faith, it's then that we're primed for the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. One of the mistakes I think that, that happens in our you might say, our charismatic tribe, the the stream that we come from that's charismatic, is that sometimes there's so much emphasis on focus on the Holy Spirit, relate to the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, pursue the power of the Holy Spirit. The ones that ends up happening is we actually get distracted from Jesus. Where Jesus himself said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will do what? He will testify of me. He will glorify me. So when the Spirit's actually working, he's always moving us towards faith in Christ, conformity to Christ, obedience to Christ. You guys follow me with that? And so I think it's important for us to recognize this is what's happening here. And I'm not, please understand, I'm not trying to explain away that these guys spoke with tongues, that is, languages they couldn't have known naturally. And they prophesied, that is, they said specific, specific words for specific people or people groups at this specific time. God was supernaturally moving through them. We believe God still wants to supernaturally move through us. But the lesson we need to learn is that's going to happen as our focus is on God's Son. As He's the object of our faith. Jesus, I trust you, so you do what you want to do in me by your Holy Spirit. Are you guys following me on that? Okay. So, let me me give you one scripture to kind of, or, or three scriptures really, to back this up. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Talking about the work of the Spirit. He says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Notice gifts is italicized. So this is one word, spiritual gifts. Those two words is one word in the Greek. It's pneumaticos. It's the work of the Spirit. Now concerning the work of the Spirit, brethren, Paul says, I do not want you to be ignorant. You, uh, you know that you were Gentiles carried away to these dumb idols. However, you were led. Now Paul says, look, concerning the work of the Spirit, I don't want you to be ignorant. And then he says, remember what you were like. You used to follow idols. And one of the reasons this is important is because we tend to think of the work of the Spirit only in manifestations like tongues and prophecy. So if there's a supernatural manifestation, if there's some sort of a mystical experience or a powerful experience, then that's when we know the work of the Spirit's there. And what what Paul I believe is bringing this up for because obviously in 1 Corinthians 12 13 and 14 he's going to talk about the work of the spirit the details of the spirit but he's bringing this but he brings it up he starts with this because the truth is even those who worship idols can manifest some of the same things so people can be involved in the cults and and pray in tongues now it's demonic but they can still do it people can be involved in the occult and so to speak, prophesy, or at least say something that they shouldn't have been able to know naturally. But that can be demonic. Do you see what I'm saying? And so Paul wants to start off the idea of, of, or this teaching on on the work of the Spirit by making sure they say, look, you, you were led by idols, but this is what you need to understand. He says, therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says, listen, here's where you have to begin. That the work of the Holy Spirit is to know that Jesus is the blessed one and that Jesus is Lord. So the Holy Spirit always leads us to say, okay, I want to submit to the Lordship of Christ. This is what I'm getting at. So that when Paul goes to Ephesus and he sees these these, these disciples, who end up being disciples of John, he sees that they are lacking something. What he's recognizing is what they're lacking on, lacking in is their focus on Jesus. Their focus is on other things. In their case, it wasn't uh, strange idolatry stuff. In their case, it was just they didn't know enough yet. Are you guys clear on that? I'm not confusing you, am I? Okay, good. All right, so that's the first lesson. Uh, God's son uh, must be the object of our faith. let's go to the next bit verse eight it says and, and and he went into the synagogue and he spoke boldly for three months so he's in Ephesus Paul sees these new, new believers he takes them with him he's in the synagogue he speaks boldly for three months reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God and here's the second thing we want to lesson we want to learn in these next few verses and that is God's Word should be the priority of ministry. So God's Son needs to be the object of our faith. God's Word needs to be the priority of ministry. He goes into the synagogue. This is what we've seen all throughout Acts, isn't it? The apostles go into the synagogue, Paul specifically, and what does he do? He cracks open the Word, unrolls the Scripture, because it was probably in a scroll, and he says, let's talk about Jesus from this. Now, it's interesting because... When it talks, when we talk about making the Word of God a, a, the priority, as I've said before, I want to say again, I don't mean, in application, pulpit ministry, like what I'm doing right now. That's, it's part of that. That's, it's not less than that, but it's more than that. Paul here, he goes into the synagogue and says he spoke boldly. He was, he, was, he was frank. He was clear. He said what he wanted to say. He didn't beat around the bush. He didn't say, have you ever thought about... He just said, this is what the scripture says. This is what we need to get in the habit of doing. Now, if we're going to say, this is what the scripture says, guess what that means? you got to know what the scripture says. This is why we do encourage all of us who are people who can read, that we read what God says. And we get familiar with what God says. So he's speaking boldly. He's frank about what the scripture says, but also says he's reasoning. He's he's, he's trying to say, okay, this is what this means. So if you're going to explain this is what this means, not just this is what this says, what does it mean? You have to understand it, don't you? And so there's there's a need if we're going to have a priority of ministry being uh, using God's word, knowing God's word, we have to actually understand what God's word says. We've got to know it. But also says he was persuading these guys concerning the kingdom of God, concerning the reign of Christ. Now, it doesn't just mean that we need to understand it. It also means that we need to be convinced of it. If we're going to persuade somebody else, we have to be persuaded ourselves, don't we? This is why we have a Q&A. Obviously, we want that Q&A to be there so that people who don't know Jesus yet can come to know Jesus. But like for us tonight, most of us, are, I think all of us here know Jesus. It seems pretty clear. So we all know Jesus, but we still need to make sure that we are convinced that we, that we know what God says and we understand what it means and we believe it. Do you see what I'm saying? So this is, this is part of it. We, we have to be proclaiming, reasoning, persuading when it comes to the ministry of God's Word, when it comes to making sure we know it. So what happens in verse 9, it says that but, but when some were hardened, that some of the Jews in the synagogue were hardened, and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, Paul departed from them and withdrew the disciples, in other words, he took them with him, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. Uh, now, the school of Tyrannus was probably just a, a lecture hall that Paul rented out or leased or was allowed to use. Uh, that's probably all it was. We don't to know anything else about it, so that's probably all it was, okay? Now, the, the issue is this. Paul's there for three months. He's enduring with these guys. But what's happening? What's happening is those that are hearing the word of God, their hearts are actually getting harder. So those that, that he's kind of trying to persuade and reason with and be frank with, their hearts are getting harder. In fact, when it says they did not believe, it doesn't mean that just like they still don't believe. It means they disbelieve. They purposely and, and perversely said, no, I refuse to believe that. They didn't want to hear it. Now remember, this is Paul going into their synagogue. This is Paul, in a sense, going into where they are. This is not them coming to his church, so to speak. And so what happens? Paul has to separate himself. And this is what happens sometimes. If we're going to make sure that God's word remains the priority of ministry, sometimes we have to separate from people who are going, shut up, I don't want to hear this anymore. Joe alluded to this last week, didn't he, about casting pearls before swine and There's a time when you just kind of say, well, you know what? I've tried to share with you and you don't want to hear anymore. And you have to kind of distance yourself. Especially if it begins to affect how the Word is meant to minister to you or other unbelievers. I think this also probably have an application that if you're in a church that isn't teaching you God's Word, there's a time when you have to pull away from that. Now, let me say something in regards to that application. If I moved to a city, let's assume I'm not called to be a pastor. So if I moved to a city, wasn't called to be a pastor, just moved there for work or such, and I couldn't find a church that was where there was really good, solid teaching. But there was churches where they believed the true gospel, they did love Jesus, and they really worked hard to love each other. I would still go and commit myself to that church. Because the truth is, in this day and age, you can get good teaching on the Internet, can't you? Let's be honest. But you can't get a good fellowship on the Internet, (laughs) So uh, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that pulpit ministry is the key to a good church. It's not what I'm saying at all, okay? But I am saying there is time in people's lives where they need to pull away from maybe a, a place where people aren't wanting to just take God out of His word. I was talking to someone today, and they were wrestling with this. They have a relationship with their believers, and they're doing ministry with a group of other believers, and they're really wrestling with this, the things where they could see something clear in God's Word, but other people just think, oh, it's ridiculous, we don't want to do that at all. And it was a secondary issue, it wasn't a primary issue, but they're wrestling with, how do I deal with this? How do I move forward in ministry? Because it was a secondary issue, we could encourage them to move forward and not worry about that. But it's tough. It seems to be more and more that it's difficult to find people who, who really do want their faith and their doctrine and their practice to be filtered through Scripture. It gets difficult. So there is a time when we have to pull away. Now, we're trying to, as a church, uh, find churches that we can join in with. And by the grace of God, we're we're doing that. We're finding some churches that we can agree on the gospel, we can agree on some basic important things, and we're going to do some stuff together with them. But sometimes it gets difficult. and Sometimes there is a time, if we're going to be making sure that God's Word is the priority of ministry, that we have to pull away from people who, who don't want to hear it. So Paul pulls these guys out, uh, and it says in verse 10 that this continued. In other words, him him teaching daily uh, uh, these multitudes that are coming to hear him. Uh, it says that he continued this for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, this this kind of blows me away, you know. So here's Paul. First of all, I'm thinking, two years, you're making some seriously good progress if a whole continent is beginning to hear, This is probably a reference to Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Is probably what it's a reference to. But the truth is, he's persevering in this place where initially, after three months, people are like, we don't want to hear you anymore. Paul goes, fine, I'll rent my own building, and I'm just going to keep teaching the God's Word and discipling these guys, and we'll see what God does with it. And he perseveres for two years. What happens? All of Asia hears the Word of God. Now, don't get a picture that that means that everybody started crowding into this place to hear Paul. What we, we understand is during the time that this happened, most scholars believe this is when Paul one, wrote the letter to the first Corinthians. This is also when probably the seven churches that are mentioned in Revelation, that are all in Asia Minor, were all planted. I'm not saying Paul planted those. But what's happening here is Paul's making disciples. What are they doing now? They're going out and making other disciples. They're planting other churches. Two years. That blows me away. We've been going for 10 years. We haven't planted any churches yet. Soon, maybe, but not yet. And the, and the thing is, it's like, man, this is, this, is, this is amazing to me. But it's also a, a, a testimony to Paul's endurance. And and, and his perseverance. And this is the thing when it comes to ministering God's word. And I'm saying this because a lot of you guys are going to have an opportunity to do this. Either whether it's one-to-one in discipleship or in a small group capacity. Or even some of you guys planting churches. Who knows? But you're going to have an opportunity to minister God's word. And you're going to think to yourself, is this doing any good? Is this actually helping the people that I'm trying to share with? Persevere. Because you don't know the kind of influence that God's bringing. You don't know what God's doing. You really, really don't. You have no clue. Where I did ministry in California, I I know it sounds glamorous, California, but it was in the armpit desert, a place that nobody wants to live. Trust me, it was a horrible place to live. Okay, And this place where we, we lived, it was tough. It was really hard to do ministry. And God kept us there for 12 years. And I look back now and I think, wow, God did some amazing stuff. And we had some seasons where there was numerical growth and stuff. But that's not what's so amazing. What's amazing is, as God kept us there for that 12 years, now what's happened is there are all these other churches with youth ministries or youth ministers who were young people that got saved in my youth group when they were in their teenage years. And they're all now not just being youth pastors, but teaching the Bible to their kids. In fact, people, when I was there a few years ago, someone was saying, I've never seen this anywhere else before. I know it's happened lots of other places before. But I think, that's amazing. Now, uh, you know, God didn't tell me that was going to happen. I had no idea it was going to happen. No promise it was going to happen. But there's something about just enduring, even if you don't see the fruit you might want to see. So, that's the second lesson. God's Word should be the priority of ministry. Third lesson. God's power should not be underestimated. This is where it gets a bit comical to me. (laughs) <laughs> I probably shouldn't laugh at, this, at some of these incidents, but I think they're kind of funny. Here's what happens. Verse 11. Now it says, while Paul's doing this, it says, Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, these would be like sweat cloths, were brought from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now remember back in Acts chapter 5, Weird things were happening there as well, right? Peter walks down the road, his shadow casts on people, and they get healed. So people are bringing their sick and saying, oh, Peter walks down the street, put him there, wait, the sun's about, okay, put him right there. And they'd walk past there, the shadow would pass, and they'd actually get healed. And that's weird stuff. And and remember, part of the the, the principle, one of the things that that Luke's trying to get at, is remember he's trying to show, okay, just as God used Peter, Jesus called and used Peter, now also God called, and Jesus called and used, is using Paul. There's a parallel to their ministries. They have that same kind of apostolic authority. But also it's important to recognize that Luke's being clear, God worked unusual miracles. <laughs> These weren't your standard everyday garden variety miracles. These were like weird stuff. Sweat rags and someone touches it. Now, there are some churches all over the world that still do this kind of stuff. They'll they'll sell, sell uh, some of them do it for money. They kind of exploit people and they'll sell it. But some people actually just believe this is what you do. So they'll get sweat rags from the preacher and then yeah, it's gross, isn't it? And they'll take it and they'll say, okay, you couldn't come to church, but we're sending a sweat rag because so, you're sick and just place it on you and the prayer of faith is going to heal you. That's what they do. But God says these were unusual miracles. In fact, really, what I see happening is God producing God's power producing unusual miracles because it was an unusual time. He was establishing his church. He was, he was establishing this doctrine that Paul's beginning to write like what we read in 1 Corinthians. And so God's wanting to establish that by these unusual miracles. Now, what also happens, verse 13, is it says, then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists Took it upon themselves to call on the name, call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, "We exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches." Also, there were seven sons of Sceva. Uh, it sounds like a band. Seven sons of Sceva. Anyway, uh, a Jewish high priest or Jewish chief priest who did so, and the evil spirit answered. <laughs> check this out. Evil spirit answered and said, "Jesus, I know, and Paul, I know, but who are you?" Then the man leapt in whom the evil spirit was uh, the man in whom the evil spirit uh, in whom the evil spirit was, leapt on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded <laughs> Now this was supposedly a common thing in Ephesus, not just like Jewish exorcists, but all kinds of kind of weird ma- magic and superstitious beliefs, and these kinds of things happened so these guys. These Jewish exorcists, and, and this is fairly common, we're going to see, um, right? We, Jesus talks about when he's casting out demons. Uh, and they're saying, oh, you're doing that by the devil. He says, well, uh, you're blaming, you're saying it's the devil, but w- w- what's the Bible actually say? Or, or or, or if you think I'm doing it by the devil, he says, if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. So there are people even in that day that were kind of, this is what they do. They think someone have an evil spirit, so they kind of go do some kind of incantation or some prayer and try to cast out the spirit, get a few you know, quid for that, and then move on to the next house. This is what they did. And sometimes these guys actually had success and did cast out a spirit, an evil spirit. Obviously not like Jesus, because everyone was shocked, but that he had authority over evil spirits. The point is, these guys see that Paul has this kind of authority. Paul seems to be able just to cast out evil spirits. So they go, ooh, he's, he's got the right formula. Uh, we do this in the name of the Jesus that Paul preaches. It's interesting, too, here... In the original language in verse 15, when it says, when the evil spirit says, Jesus I know, he says, Jesus I know by experience, and Paul I'm acquainted with. That's literally what it means. But who are you? Now, there's something here with these guys, too, again, that I think we need to be challenged by. Because how many people are out there or in churches? Who say, um, "Oh, I believe in the Jesus that the pastor preaches," or yeah, or, or yeah, I, I confess the Jesus that my spouse believes in. But God calls us to trust in Jesus who saved me. I believe in Jesus who saved me. Now, these guys had the superstitious kind of faith, and all it did was make them <laughs> susceptible. To get beat down by the enemy in, in a very serious and practical way. Kind of comical as well. But here's the point about God's power, okay? God's power cannot be manipulated by our own will. When we're talking about God's power not being underestimated, that doesn't mean that it's, God's power is this kind of impersonal force that if we can just tap into it, we can just start doing what we want, you know? It doesn't work that way. He doesn't work that way. God does what he wants to do. And we can't just go, oh, okay, there's power there. I'll sort of tap into that, and then everything will be fine. It's amazing how much superstition I still see in some Western Christians. Some things that I I see people do, that I just think, why would you think that's going to work? I I know lots of people. I don't want to... I'm not going to give an example because it'll... It might be disrespectful, but it's just the bottom line. Is, is it's amazing how many things are not based on what God says about Himself, but, but some superstition. Oh, if I do X, Y, and Z, then this thing will happen. But that's not what, how the Bible teaches. We we can't. God's not a vending machine. We can't just put the right change in and get what we want. God does what He wants to do when He wants to do it. Now, here's what we know God can do. Okay, here's what we know God does do. Okay, God does. Bring people to repentant faith by its extreme power. And we should not underestimate God's ability to bring people to repentant faith. Because look what happens in this scenario, right? This demonic possessed person over, overwhelms and, and beats down these uh, fake exorcists. And verse 17 says, This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. So, in other words, all in the town were like, Wow. That we need to revere uh, the God of this guy, Paul. And it says, And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And notice, And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Now, this is kind of maybe a picture of those that in Ephesus that had become Christians, maybe were still messing about with some of these arts. They were still holding on to some of these superstitious beliefs. And when they see this happen, when they hear this happen, they go, Oh man, we've got to repent. And they come forth and say, we've been messing around with this stuff. We've got to stop doing this stuff. It says, verse 19, also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of them all. And they counted of the value of them. Uh, it, it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. We're talking like hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of books. So the word of God, a word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. Now, remember, the lesson we want to get from this is that we shouldn't underestimate God's power. God can do unusual miracles uh, during unusual times, and we shouldn't underestimate that. Sometimes people want me to comment on specific manifestations. Hey, I heard this thing happened, or that thing happened. Do you think that's of God? Do you think that's not of God? And I try to avoid that, and I'll tell you why. Because the truth is, if I'm not there, how how am I supposed to know? I'm not really necessarily concerned so much about what the manifestation is, though some manifestations are obviously clearly demonic. I mean, Some of the stuff that happened in London in the 90s was so bad the police had to come in. It was really bad. Some really, really horrible stuff had happened. The Holy Spirit supposedly had fell, and there was some really weird stuff that was going on that even the most extreme uh, charismatic churches ended up backing away from. So sometimes it's obviously demonic. Sometimes you don't know. Sometimes it's hard to tell. So I don't I don't want to sort of say, okay, there's this radical thing that happened. Oh, that couldn't be of God, could it? Well, I don't know. God does all kinds of stuff. Even does stuff for people that are still a bit superstitious. Why? Because He's so gracious. I mean, think about the woman who had the flow of blood for all those years. She thinks, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'll be healed. Is that good theology? Not really. But what happened? She got healed. Why? Because God's merciful. So we don't want to underestimate what God does, okay? But what we want to pursue is what God says he's going to do. A couple of verses and I'll close. Remember what Paul told Timothy. God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. I think one of the things that we really need to believe God for is power. I don't mean that in some weird mystical way. I mean the, the power to live the life that God's called us to. I mean, think about this. Do we, do we say we believe in this God who raises the dead, but we can't trust him to give us joy in difficult circumstances? Do we say we believe in the God who can feed 5,000 with one small boy's lunch, but we don't trust Him to to provide for us to pay that bill that's due? Do we say we believe in the power of God to change people, but as we're praying for for each other, we think, oh, yeah, but they have a choice to make. And, you know, that whole choice thing, that always overrules God's power. Really? Is that what we read in Scripture? Do we believe that God powerfully chases people down and gets their attention and changes their life? Isn't that what happened with the Apostle Paul? Well, God's given us the spirit of power. We, we believe that God can do so much more than we, than we give him credit for. Also, the Bible says this. That's why the Bible says in, in Ephesians, Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord, and what? In the power of His might. Let's believe God for the strength to do the things He's called us to do. We serve a mighty God. So, uh, Paul's ministry in Ephesus was pretty amazing. And we want to learn those lessons. Not because we think we can be like Paul, but because we know. We know the same Spirit that dwelt in Paul dwells in us. The same gospel that Paul believed We believe. Same Jesus that walks with Paul walks with us.